1: This is John Anderson Direct, with Steve Kooning. John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, meaning sometimes the sound quality is less than optimum. Well, Stephen Cannon, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, this is a remarkable book, uh, and I hope it's being widely read in my country, as I'm sure it has been in yours. Um, let's, at the beginning of the book, if we can go there, you tell of a climate workshop that you yourself convened uh, in 2014 that radically changed how you thought about climate change. Can you fill us in about that experience and then tell us why it left you so unsettled in that very senior policymaking position that you're, you occupied at that time?
0: John, I was asked in... Late 2013, by the American Physical Society, which is the professional organization of 50,000 physicists worldwide, to revisit and perhaps recommend changes to their statement on climate change, which had been issued about seven years previously. And I am very much a scientist. Take nobody's word for it, but investigate yourself is the way we've all been trained. And so I decided to do a hard look at the science. I convened a workshop consisting of three consensus experts and three experts who took some issue with the consensus. And we sat and poked in Brooklyn for a day, presentations, discussion. And as you noted, I came away quite unsettled, realizing that the science was nowhere near as certain as I had been led to believe over the past seven or eight years. Everybody could agree that the globe was warming. Everybody could agree that carbon dioxide concentrations were going up in the atmosphere and exerting a warming influence on the globe, but exactly how the climate would respond to those warming influences and what they would mean for the future of society and ecosystems, there was great disagreement among the scientists.
1: And as I understand it, uh, there is tremendous disagreement on the modelling, but we'll come to that as we work through this. So it's probably useful in our minds to keep in, in sort of separate baskets. There's the broad science that tells us what's happening. Then there's the modelling that tells us what it might mean and from that, we ought to be drawing responses. So there's a three baskets, if you like. But to come to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's recently released its sixth assessment report. Now, the mainstream media, I'm not so sure in your country, I can't speak for it, but here, it's been extraordinary. Uh, it's been, in my view, uh, almost a lemming-like sort of who can get to the cliff with the greatest disaster first. It cites the report endlessly as further evidence that major changes in climate are inevitable and irreversible, with carbon emissions causing extreme weather events, this linking of the two, to become more common. Now, in your book, you devote quite a section to exploring the evidence for changes in extreme weather events, floods, fires, droughts, cyclones, and heat waves. And you've had access to the world's best information and most knowledgeable people on this. Two, two questions. Firstly, as an important preliminary, can you explain why carbon's important and when too much of it becomes a problem? because we hear a lot of people saying, "What's the problem with carbon? It's a building block. I mean, the planet's greening. I'm a farmer. Food production's going up, not down. And, and secondly, according to the IPCC's assessment reports, are each of these weather, extreme weather events becoming more common, and, and, and is human activity responsible for those events?
0: So so those are excellent questions, and that's an excellent parsing between what we've seen in the climate system versus how we might project its changes. Uh, Let me talk about carbon. First, we use that word loosely in common discussion. But in fact, it is the molecules that contain carbon that are of concern. Carbon dioxide, most importantly, but also methane uh, is important, and almost about half as important as carbon dioxide. When those molecules are in the atmosphere, they retard a little bit more of the heat coming off the planet's surface, and so warm it. That is the greenhouse effect. They are not the most important greenhouse gases. That's water vapor, and there's a lot of it there naturally, but the little bit extra that human activities are adding to the greenhouse gases is what is of concern. And again, um, the models that are used to estimate how much they are influencing the climate and how the climate might respond suggest that we could see a warming averaged over the globe of two to three degrees by the end of this century relative to what it was before human activities were significant.
1: So. Um... It's already uh, since the Industrial Revolution we say it's what up about one degree one one and a half 1. Uh,
0: 1, yeah
1: so we're roughly doubling that or maybe a bit more by the end of the century on a current do-nothing course
0: the IPCC says that under a plausible moderate emissions scenario for the future we would see another 1. 1.5 1. 1.6 degrees of warming by the end of the century relative to what we saw in the year 2000.
1: We don't hear much about the moderate scenario, though, of course. That's not the one that suits the current
0: narrative. Right, But that scenarios are a whole other uh, part of the discussion, which I hope we'll get to it at some point. But let me try to turn to your second question about the incidence of extreme events. Uh the most recent IPCC report, which is 4,000 pages, Written by several hundred scientists over two years, takes a long time to dig into and read the details. But all one can see that there are some interesting things. For example, while there are regional trends, there are no global trends in floods or droughts, uh, contrary again to widespread perception. In addition, There are no long-term trends in the number of hurricanes, although very recently there's one paper that says maybe hurricanes are strengthening, but they say the time is too short. It's only 40 years' worth of data, and we're not sure yet. Um, You can go on sea level rise. Yes, it's rising a little bit more rapidly now, but it was rising as rapidly 80 years ago and it went down and now it's going up. And, and so uh, it's very hard to find significant changes in extreme events, except for temperature-related events. And of course, the temperatures have gone up.
1: And yet uh, your you're writing on this uh, in the book is, is just terrific. Low confidence regarding the sign of trend in the magnitude and or of floods. Low confidence, low confidence in trends, Uh, and large scale changes, low confidence, but you never hear that. Whenever we have a serious weather event now, it's automatically attributed to climate change. And uh, look, I'm a farmer. I don't take it lightly at all. And we were on the brunt of the terrible drought and floods that we had from about 2016 on in this country. And day after day after day, I'd hear our national broadcaster in particular say that this was all the fault of governments in Australia that hadn't done enough about climate change. In reality, uh, less of the planet is burning, since we started to record these things in terrible fires each year, years than was the case in the past, but that's never pointed out. I understand that is true.
0: Yes, that, that's correct. Global wildfires have decreased by about 25% in the last 20 years. That's attributed to a decline in the burning of uh, forest for pasture land. Um, and so that's a signal that human influences are much more significant in fires, not in the way you think, not through the climate, but rather in deforestation, through burning of forest fires.
1: Well, that makes sense. Uh, Well, well, to tease us out a bit, you mentioned several factors that contribute to misleading media coverage of the IPCC assessment report findings, including the emission of uncertainty estimates. Uncertainty estimates and the demand for catchy headlines. And you also outline a potential solution for tackling misleading information at its source through the creation of a, quote, red team, an idea originally used in the military. How does the truth about what the science really says, according to the IPCC's full reports, become so obscured by the time it gets to the media, uh, and frankly, to policymakers? Uh, And how do you propose we we tackle this? Because we could make some very serious mistakes if we don't get this right.
0: Well, to quote a tagline from uh, a famous TV show, the truth is out there. Um, It's really right there in the reports and in the data. The problem is most people who talk about climate, including the media and politicians, uh, have never read the reports. And the information gets filtered through a long game of telephone that starts with the research literature and data. It goes through these assessment reports to the summaries for policymakers, which are heavily influenced by the governments, onto the media and then out to the decision makers and the public. And there is opportunity for mischief at each step along that chain. You might, for example, truncate the data that you talk about, at some point in the past, let's say from 1960 onward, conveniently then having to discuss anomalously hot conditions in, let's say, the 1930s, as were true in this country, and I believe were also true in Australia. Or you might talk only about the last 10 years of sea level rise, again omitting the fact that it was rising as rapidly 80 years ago. Uh, You know, the reporters who cover this, they're not scientists. They're on a climate beat. And they will not get on the front page of the website or of the newspaper unless they tell a story that's dramatic. If it bleeds, it leads. Reporting that there's hardly any change in many aspects of climate uh, is is just not interesting.
1: Well, uh, perhaps that reflects something that seems to be deeply innate in the human psyche, a desire to catastrophize. And the problem when you catastrophize is that you often then make emotional rather than rational and scientific responses, which can make the problem worse. And I actually do believe some of the policy ideas around at the moment will make the problem worse. But if we could come, Stephen, to the issue of models. Uh, One very prominent Australian writer um, often writes about how we got the modelling on COVID around the world so hopelessly wrong, and then goes on to say, why do we place so much confidence in the modelling on the impact of, 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 of the established realities in science uh, and, and rely on that modelling so far out when, in fact, we can't even rely on it to show us accurately what's happened in the past? So, so if, we give the, if we take that models are fundamental to most climate change research, uh, you point out that climate systems are fiendishly difficult. To model in a way that accurately predicts future climate patterns or even accurately reproduces what's happened in the past. So what is it about climate that makes it so hard to model and just how, what confidence can we have in those climate models underpinning most of the research that's bandied about? Stephen?
0: Climate is the average of weather over 30 years, the average properties of weather and weather happens on short time scales. Every day it's different, even every few hours it's different. And it also happens in a localized way. It can be raining here and not raining 30 kilometers away. And so in order to describe the weather and then be able to take its average, you need a lot of little boxes in the model that are going to cover the earth in the atmosphere and in the ocean And then you need to move the air and energy and water and so on on pretty short time steps, let's say every 10 minutes, typically, and to do that for centuries. And that takes an awful lot of computer power, first of all. And secondly, the boxes can't be too small, otherwise there are too many of them. So you've got to make assumptions about what happens inside those boxes. And different models will make different assumptions and hence get different answers. I think the models can at best paint a very fuzzy picture of what might be happening globally in the next many decades. But when you get down to regional projections, what's going to happen in Australia uh, over the next 10 or 20 years, uh, I think even the professionals would say it's hopeless.
1: Yeah, well, as a layman, because I'm not a scientist and, and that makes it so hard And yet so important to try and sort of find a proper way of understanding all of this. Um, But on top of the modelling itself, the IPCC, it's also used models that project future greenhouse gas concentrations under different scenarios of global economic and population growth and policy settings. Now, this is really important. Not many people know it, but there are 92 countries on Earth today where the population is in decline, many of them very rapid decline. Um, you know, population is likely to peak and many economies will have a real problem, uh, you know, by the end of this century with a lack of people uh, to keep their economies running properly. And, and that's not widely understood. It must have massive implications. But you point out in your book that just, just as one example, but that you point out in your book that the issues associated with researchers using very extreme growth trajectories and unrealistic policy settings to determine what business as usual and in inverted commas Uh, emissions might look like. Can, Can you explain a bit more about how these emissions trajectories were created and why unrealistic assumptions have been made too often about business as usual scenarios?
0: In order to project future emissions, you have to make many different assumptions. What will population be? What will the technologies be? Will we all be using nuclear energy or will we still be burning coal? What will the economies be? Because energy use is strongly coupled to economic activity. And then, of course, the population of the globe. You can't predict all of those things with any great confidence. And so what researchers do is make scenarios. These are different stories about the future of the world. In one extreme, it might be a very populous, coal-heavy world. In another extreme, the population might stabilize at 9 billion people, just slightly more than the the 8 billion today, uh, and run on renewables. And these scenarios are not meant to be predictions, but merely to span the range of future possibilities. Some of the extreme scenarios are there not so much for this is what might happen, But they're there for scientific reasons, since when you push the models hard, the climate signal comes out of the noise more obviously. And so you might see something where, you know, climate influences are three times what they are today by the time you get to 2100. That helps demonstrate how the models respond, but even the IPCC deems that unlikely to happen in its latest report. Now, how did that get to be termed business as usual? Back in 2012, there was a meeting. You can find this in the reputable media, such as the New York Times. There was a meeting, Mike Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, um, a couple of other very wealthy people, where they determined that they needed to personalize climate change. And they made a concerted effort to push the most extreme scenarios as business as usual that persisted for about six or seven years. And now you can find in the journals, disavowing that notion, and the world is very likely to be on a much more moderate trajectory uh, of emissions.
1: Yeah, you refer in the book, uh, I can imagine that this would happen, that there would be scientists who you respect and uh, who would respect your capabilities in this area. But they say, Look, you know, you're undermining our attempts to convince people that urgent attention and and action is needed now. And so what you're seeing is this human tendency, even the best scientists, if I may say so, are in the end human. They want to be, they want this stuff to be noticed. Uh, And so that can lead to this over-egging of the cake looking for action. And I think that in itself is quite a problem, uh, you know, when it comes from experts, when people who do know what they're
0: talking about. It is uh, really a problem. In other parts of my life, I have been giving advice to decision makers for a long time. When I was chief scientist at BP, I was advising the executives there on technology and strategy. In advising the U.S. government, I'm involved with the safety and reliability of our nuclear stockpile. I was involved with the Human Genome Project and setting its quality standards. And I adhere to the training and mentoring that I had from the previous generation, you tell it like it is as a scientist, because it's not your job to make the decisions. Your job is to inform the decisions and to do so in an unbiased, complete and transparent way. But in the end, these difficult decisions about whether to decarbonize or not, for example, they're values decisions. They have to fold in the scientific certainties and uncertainties with the values uh, intergenerational equity, North-South equity, economic development versus the environment, and so on. And those are not scientific issues. They're really political issues. So I'll try, and I think many of the best science advisors try, to just do the facts. Here's what might happen, here are the risks, here are the uncertainties, uh, and let them Decision makers do what they're supposed to do.
1: Uh, As a former decision maker, very much, I stress former, (laughs) I'm very much a private citizen again now, but there's always that tendency then to grab hold of something and and hype it up, to spin it. Uh, And there's an enormous amount, I mean, mean, you needn't comment if you choose not to, but uh, as a former practitioner of the art, I see an awful lot of politicians who know almost nothing about the science at all. Their, their objective is to garner votes and support. And I think, I actually think that they're in danger of going over the top, of creating an environment where you can't get rational decisions. And one of the reasons you won't get rational decisions is that so many people can be left out if you rush too quickly, too many people are hurt. We saw that in the last election here. And one of the things that was being said was the one side of politics had a very ambitious program, which was uncosted and not detailed. Whenever they were questioned about it, the response was, oh, but the cost of not doing anything will outweigh the costs of of going down this road. That's not good enough in policy terms. That would be like a scientist just perverting their own trade. You have to be prepared to argue the case. Um, Do you have any thoughts? This is a really important issue because it's never discussed. With your background, can you comment on just how badly, say we do have that mid-range scenario? Say by the end of the century, we're at, um, we've are at we had a, a total of three degrees warming since before the Industrial Revolution. What would that mean for the global economy? Because we need to do some benefit-cost ratios. We need to understand what we're actually really dealing with here uh, and, and what the costs of action versus inaction might really look like. It's not getting much attention.
0: This is one of the surprises that you can find if you read the reports carefully. You find it right there in the U.N. IPCC report, and you find it right there in the U.S. government report. If the globe were to warm, let us say, even five degrees from today, so that's uh, six degrees um, from uh, pre-industrial times, that the net economic impact on either the U.S. or the globe would be about 4% in 2100. Now, 4%, is that a big number? Is that a small number? Well, consider that the economy has grown and is projected to grow at 2% a year. So that's two years worth of growth 70 or 80 years from now. That's in the noise. Far too small to make a difference. In other words, if the economy would ordinarily have grown by 400%, which is 70 years at percent growth it would have only grown instead by 384 percent rather than 400 percent far too small to project accurately and far too small in the sense that there are many other influences that are much more important on the economy than the warming that we've been discussing it's right there in the report Nevertheless, you see headlines that climate change is going to destroy the economy. And I would love to ask some of the politicians or some of the scientists, Mr. Gates, for example, Bill Gates, who's been very prominent about this, how can that be a climate crisis? It's right there in the reports, not Steve's science, but the consensus science. Uh, I'd love to see what the answer is.
1: Yeah, as a subset of all of that, the most basic economic need of all of us is to be able to eat properly. Uh, I'm a farmer. I'm worried about weather. I do not take weather lightly. For my critics who might say I'm sounding like a climate denier, I'm not. I just want to get the policy right. But you cover this quite a bit. And you talk about how the key messages uh, um, coming through are that there might be some increase in the price of food, no mention of yield, In fact, the price increases that these projections point to are minuscule. They actually suggest what they actually suggest to me, Stephen, as somebody who knows a little bit about politics and economics, is that food production is likely to increase and that the the true real cost relative to other things of foodstuffs are likely not a not only will food continue to be abundant, but it's likely to continue to come down in price. Isn't, Isn't that the reality?
0: I would agree. And, you know, a lot of that has got to do with technology and farming practices and so on. And we are wonderful at adapting to whatever minor bumps in the road climate is going to throw to us. I'd, I'd like to come back just for a second to the political or the politician's motivation. There was a very astute and somewhat cynical journalist in the early 20th century, H.L. Mencken, yep. uh, who said... And I may not get the quote exactly right. The purpose of practical politics is to keep the public alarmed by a series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary, so that the populace will be clamoring to be led to safety. And I believe that that's much of what's going on in the climate story. In this country, we see it on the other side with immigration. I'm sure in Australia, it's not an unheard of uh, technique for other issues as well.
1: Uh, well, regrettably, uh, there's a lot of truth in it uh, and uh, it's hard to sell copy if you're not saying something that's outlandish, hard to get attention. And for politicians, it, you know, getting attention, unfortunately, is very, very important in an age when attention spans are very short. Uh, the, the, uh, in, there's another, there's a flip side to that coin, though, Churchill commented on it. Uh, and <clears throat> when he was writing up the history of the interwar period in Britain, he said that um, uh, the one thing politicians didn't want to do was to alarm people with the reality that there was trouble brewing across the country, across the the channel. They they didn't want to be disabused of that. So they're highly selective in what they want to worry us about. And I see that in the climate change debate, frankly, because particularly the Europeans, I'll be really blunt about this, you get the impression that a great deal of what they're doing as they sort of pose on how much action they're doing and how good they're doing is they're actually outsourcing a lot of European emissions anyway to other parts of the world. They're not actually contributing to this as a global problem very much. But um, let's let's come then to energy and, and emissions. Uh, the fact is that our living standards uh, have been driven by cheap and reliable energy. But a, an interesting comment from my country, we actually are the only country in the world that has a formal prohibition on nuclear energy. You'd actually have to change the law in Australia to have nuclear energy. We rely heavily on coal uh, for its baseload capacity. Um, and the way the, uh, a lot of this is covered, you wouldn't think we needed baseline capacity. That is a reliable source of energy that's constantly needed, constantly available, so that if you're in the middle of uh, you know, a tricky operation uh, and the hospital lights and power doesn't go down, uh, or if you're doing an aluminium pour, you don't uh, ruin the whole system by having it go cold on you. Um, is the distinction between baseload and intermittent power something that's understood properly? And, and and how important do you think it is? What do you think can be done about securing renewables? These are important technical questions. I mean, if we can get to renewables, great. But at what price can we make them reliable? And, and what role do you think coal and nuclear should continue to play? A bunch of issues in there.
0: Sure. So electricity, we have come to expect to be highly reliable. In this country, the standard is that the bulk electricity system should be down no more than a day in a decade. We, of course, have seen all kinds of chaos ensues, for example, in California or Texas in this country, when electricity is not there. Renewables, wind and solar, are unfortunately, as you noted, intermittent. That means that they do not generate electricity when the sun doesn't shine or when the wind doesn't blow. And since we don't have yet economic or large-scale ways of storing electricity, you have to produce the electricity when it's needed. And if the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing, you need something to pick up the slack. And that's the base load. And as you say, coal and then natural gas, which can be turned on and off relatively rapidly. Coal doesn't like to be turned on and off, and so it's generating all the time. The problem is, of course, that the load on the grid varies a lot during the day. It's low at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then it's high at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when everybody has got the air conditioner running on a hot day. And so if we're going to have a high fraction of wind and solar, as many people are advocating, you'd better have some kind of backup. That can either be big batteries, but the technology is not there yet to let us do that economically, or it could be gas that you turn on and off as you need it, but that emits carbon dioxide, and certainly coal, it would have to be sequestered and then we'd catch the CO2 and pump it under the ground if you really want to uh, avoid emissions. And then finally, of course, you can can have nuclear, which is truly emissions-free. So we need to think about the electricity grid as a system and not just say, oh, wind and solar have gotten so cheap, so let's just deploy those. And the cost of that reliability makes the cost of the system five, six times more than you would think it is if you just had wind and solar.
1: So that's the really key number. It's getting the system, the grid, if you like, to that point could be, that's where the massive expense comes in, because we hear this line all the time, oh, renewables are now cheaper. And if that's the case, why is it that the higher the dependence on or the uptake of renewables in any state or country around the world you look at, the higher the price of electricity? And, and you've just explained the reason.
0: You've got to yeah. pay for the backup. For every megawatt of renewables that you put in, you've got to put in at least a megawatt of backup.
1: So I think this is a real problem. Scientists and engineers understand the, the, the absolute physical limitations of energy system restructuring, but politicians, activists, and the media do not.
0: No, not at all. You have a sense in this country And I expect it's true in Australia as well, that the people who are setting these goals and making these plans have no understanding of the realities of the technology or the economics or the operations of energy systems, whether it's electricity or it's the automotive uh, sector.
1: Just as a little segue on batteries, you may have some thoughts here. Uh, Firstly, do you think the technology will get to the point where they're able to provide us with the backup? And secondly, what will be the environmental costs of building massive batteries in as much as we understand the technology and the production capabilities at the moment? Uh, I, I really do worry about some of the, uh, uh, the materials that go into batteries, some of the, uh, well, frankly, emissions that must be involved in gathering them around the place. So I remember, I don't know whether it was apocryphal or not, but once, somebody once told me that the truth of the matter was that a Toyota Prius probably used more energy over its whole lifespan than the Land, land Rover, um, uh, Range Rover sitting beside it in an upmarket sub, suburban city. Here's an interesting little rub for you. In Australia's wealthiest suburb at one stage, it had the highest sales of Priuses and the highest sales of Range Rovers in the country. So right. you drive one when you wanted to <laughs> to be cynical, and you, you drive the other when you wanted to look something else. Right,
0: and, and you know that the electric vehicles, whether it's plug-in hybrids or pure battery uh, vehicles, With the Australian grid being as carbon-intensive as it is, you're not really cutting emissions. Uh, You're probably increasing them because of the manufacturing emissions, as as you note. Um, I think the vehicles, the light duty vehicles, cars, small trucks, will eventually be electrified. The electricity system uh, storage, energy storage, I just helped run a U.S.-U.K. workshop on that back in, in March. Uh, we've got a long way to go on the batteries before they can be economical and scalable enough to provide the kind of storage that we need for the grid.
1: I've seen serious policymakers, some of the most intelligent people in the country here, point to these limitations and immediately just find themselves sort of banned in the public arena as climate change deniers.
0: It's like we're in the new dark ages, you know? Uh, I mean, yep. we really, these are serious issues. They merit Thoughtful responses, but the public and some of the politicians just don't want to do that. And I really wonder whether we are going to, and I'll use the word, it's pretty extreme, we're going to wreck the countries uh, if we proceed at the pace and scale that's being proposed.
1: I'll tease that out in a moment. I'm very interested in exploring your thinking on that. Um, just, um, but on this question, though, of how we cope, firstly, Um, When you talk about adjusting, you know, there's some very serious global thinkers who say you've got to do your benefit-cost ratios carefully, but the ideas of adaptation, and I come from a farming background, we've adopted adopted to drought. Australian agricultural productivity has continued to rise despite the drought. There's a powerful message in that, but you're not allowed to talk about it. It's unpopular. Um, And and why is it that adaptation is... uh, as you describe it, has become uh, verbatim in this context. And, and and how should we really understand it? Because I actually don't think we're going to be able to avoid adaptation. I was a farm ride, so I'm already doing it.
0: Right. Uh, I would agree. Uh, you know, if you look at what would be required to even stabilize human influences, global emissions need to go to zero by the latter part of this century. And you look at the demographics and development, and that's just not going to happen. All right. And so... I think it's futile to rely on that. And so the world will adapt. And adaptation has a number of advantages. First of all, it's agnostic. It doesn't matter whether the climate's changing naturally because of human influences, we still adapt. The second is it's proportional. If the climate changes a lot, we'll adapt a lot. If it's a little bit, we'll adapt a little bit. The third is it's local. And so it's much easier to sell adaptation actions than it is to sell mitigation actions. You're not talking about problems two generations away and halfway around the world. It's here and now. And finally, adaptation is autonomous. We do it anyway, and it's effective. And maybe that's why people don't like talking about it.
1: Uh, I've never seen anything like the pile on over net zero emissions. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister, I believe, actually has the right position. I admire him for it. He says it's a it's a wonderful aspiration, but I want a technology roadmap to show us how we're going to get there. Uh, one of our eminent former chief scientists has been involved in a Princeton University exercise in America showing you what it looks like if you if America goes to net zero by 2050. I mean, it is you can do it, but the cost and the physical implications, you know, you've got wind farms for miles out to sea. You've got it's just extraordinary. Um, What what are your views about this whole question of this sort of lemming-like insistence that somehow you're draconian and backward thinking and uh, almost imbecilic if you don't support (coughs) net zero now? And here's the irony. We've got businessmen and women in particular piling on and they're saying, well, we just won't invest in you unless you commit to net zero Um, Where are the engineers, the scientists, the business planners who say, well, actually, show us how you're going to get there?
0: So uh, I'm allowed to say this because I used to be, and I still am uh, after a hiatus, an academic, okay, a professor. And if you'll excuse me, those roadmaps, such as the Princeton one, are put together by a bunch of academics, right? whose main goal is to simply drive emissions to zero. Well, That's fine, but they have no understanding of the realities of the energy system. So please include the electrical engineers. Please include the uh, people whose business it is to uh, make vehicle fuels, uh, people whose business it is to manufacture vehicles, people whose business it is to build houses that are energy efficient. None of those folks are involved in these roadmaps. You know, it's a lot like the COVID situation. The public health people said lockdown completely, public safety, public health is the overwhelming priority. Or as many in the business community here in the U.S. said, at least, you can't lock down the economy. We need to keep doing business. And there's a natural tension between those two. And there's a similar tension between we need to reduce emissions, yet we need to have a viable economy, That continues to deliver important energy to people at reasonable cost and reliability. So it it's those tensions that need to be navigated, and none of the people speaking up has got a reasonable way of doing that yet.
1: Yeah, I take your COVID illustration. I mean, it's rich with illustrations as to what happens when the populace believe the government has let them down. So if the power starts to fail, people are caught in, you know on a 40-degree heat day, uh, whatever it is in your language, 110 degrees Fahrenheit day, uh, in a lift because the power's gone out and the lift won't move and the air conditioning's off and there's 10 of them there and they're going to be there for 12 hours until they can fix the problem or the lights go out in the middle of an operation or your aluminium industry, uh, your steel industry is crippled, you know, the the screams will be enormous. So governments, on the one hand, have to be responsible. Politicians have got to be mindful. You've got to keep literally the old saying, you've got to keep the lights on. But Stephen, can we come then to, let's take a, a, a global view of this. Uh, we've got Glasgow coming up as you and I speak. Goodness only knows what will come out of it. Um, but um, let's talk about the pace of both mitigation and adaption. If we go too fast, we're going to cause massive uh, uh, disruption. I would add to that that if we're not really careful, we go too fast, we force all sorts of policy outcomes that simply mean we outsource our emissions and there's no global advantage. And I think there's been a lot of that happening already. It begs the question as to whether we shouldn't attribute emissions actually to consumers, not to producers. That might be a worthwhile reform. Um, If we go too slowly, then we do increase the risk. What do we know about the... Desirable pace, in your view, you've thought a lot about this, uh, and, and you take it seriously. You know, I mean, there'll be people who say, "Oh, listen to these two—they're climate change deniers." I mean, that's just so intellectually lazy and dishonest. We're not denying the reality of it, but what are, in your view, the, the sort of reasonable approaches to take to the sort of pace? So that we. Uh, uh, you know, we don't get this wrong. And and how do you see? I mean, this is very dominated by your country at the moment. That was Europe and America insisting that the whole world must move. And people gloss over, oh, yes, China will come on side in time and uh, Indonesia will get its act together and then there's India. How do we get a global perspective on the right pace?
0: William Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2018. Precisely for thinking about this question, what is the optimal pace of reducing emissions? As you say, doing it too rapidly disrupts the economy, and I believe actually will also lose popular support. Doing it too slowly allows carbon dioxide to continue to build up and re- in, and increases climate risk and the associated cost. And so there is an optimum. The optimum, according to mainstream economic literature, is to allow the globe to warm by about 3 degrees by 2100, so that you can have time for economies to develop and technologies to develop, and then come down a little harder on reducing emissions. That 3 degrees is twice what Paris is aspiring to, and in my opinion, will not actually succeed in meeting. And and so you wish the politicians would um, not have gotten out over their skis, so to speak, uh, and advocating something that is so rapid and sweeping as to surely be suboptimal in terms of the overall cost.
1: You see, I can see a scenario where many Western countries do commit to net zero by 2050 uh, and may even, some of them may even get there. In the process, they will do immense damage to their economies, to their political stability. They will make themselves perhaps marginally cleaner, but much weaker, whilst other countries ensure that while they become dirtier, they become richer and the global outcomes are worse. I actually. Have serious doubts that it is possible that the world could get to net zero by 2050. Some countries might, but if it's a global problem, I think a question has to be asked is it possible? Is it even remotely possible that the world could get to net zero by 2050?
0: Uh, you know, anything is possible, but I think it's very improbable. The real problem lies in the developing world. There are 3 billion people on the planet don't have adequate energy, they need that energy to better their lives, and the most convenient and reliable way of getting that energy is fossil fuels. If you, not you, but if one advocates net zero, you had better also tell those countries how they're going to get their energy, yeah. and no yeah. one has provided that answer as far as I know. Yeah.
1: Can I ask you a question? Going to the title of your book, Unsettled. We do hear this mantra all the time that the science is settled. Is
0: is any area of science ever truly settled in your view? All science is contingent. As facts change, you might change your understanding and uh, theories. There are some aspects of science that are almost entirely certain. Gravitation, how the planets move around the sun Uh, The basic laws of physics in everyday circumstances are virtually certain. There are other things that are far less settled, climate science most famously, but also many aspects of biology and certainly aspects of neuroscience. How the brain works is one of the great unsettled but yet to be understood issues of our time. There are some aspects of climate science that are settled. Global warming, warming influence, very fuzzy picture of what that means for the means for the global temperature, but fuzzier yet for what it means for regional climates or how society might respond to it. So, uh, the title of the book is really a double entendre. Uh, It is meant to refer to my state of mind when I discovered these things about the official science that don't comport with the political messages or the media, but also it refers to the science. And one has to decide for oneself, is it settled enough to make trillion dollar changes or should we be waiting and seeing whether we can improve our understanding, developing technologies and making the world a better place with the energy that fossil
1: fuels provide. Uh, yes, uh, I must say, uh, I'd be very interested in your views on, on the reaction. I mean, after all, uh, you're a man of, who's held eminent positions that are directly relevant to this, where people, whether, where thinking voters would expect you to actually be across the issues. You've in good conscience engaged your mind in a very powerful way with massive issues. Uh, and, and you've come down here where you're essentially saying the science is broadly settled. The modelling is, we can only have low confidence in it and we need to be really careful about the actions we're taking. All of them seem to be very sound propositions to me. Now, I've had the experience uh, of people, when I've said something publicly and there's been you know, people who disagree, people coming up to me saying, um, I actually agree with you because quietly, but uh, I'd never say so publicly and you shouldn't have either. Tell us about the reaction to what, you, what you've said and the position you've adopted.
0: Yeah. So, so there's a famous uh, quote that uh, a gaffe in Washington is when a politician actually tells the truth. Um, and I'm a scientist and I see my job as to speak the truth. And what I've written in the book is not my truth, but is the truth of what's in the reports. And if you have a, if one has a problem with it, we'll have a conversation about who's denying what. Um, the reaction among many non-expert Leaders has been very grateful. Thank you for providing a framework in which to think about climate change and providing some of the information about it. And thank you for pointing out the misrepresentations that are there in the media and in the politics. And in some cases, thanks for providing a reassuring message and not something that scares the bejesus out of young people. In other cases, Uh, I've had the reaction you uh, alluded to, namely the experts. Some of the experts will say, you know, you're pretty right about this, but I don't dare say that in public. And then some of the more vehement uh, purveyors of doom have, uh, you know, called me the devil for doing this, uh, have cast all sorts of hominem aspersions on me. But I have to say, nobody has challenged the science as I've written it, because, in fact, I've been very careful to take everything from the official documents.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I approached it as a non-scientist, but as a historian by background and a politician, uh, thinking this will be too dense. I won't be able to understand it um, in terms of information and what have you. But in fact, it's very readable. And that's the remarkable thing. Your sourcing uh, is such that uh, it's pretty hard to walk away from what you have to say. And uh, I do very much commend it. I'll hold it up again, because the last time I did this, somebody said, you didn't hold the book up long enough. So there you go. Uh, uh, This is worth uh, getting a copy of, Unsettled, uh, what climate science tells us, what it doesn't, and why it matters. Um, But on this issue of young people particularly, you know, concerned to do the right thing by the planet and what have you, What would you say to the greater Thunbergs of this world, the radical Green Party, political parties, the new Green Deal in America, which I must say I found extraordinary that anyone took it seriously. I I really do, the new Green Deal. But to young people in particular, I mean, I'm told that 80% of young Australians have climate change anxiety. When I dug into it, I found actually they're more anxious because we stripped them of hope on just about every front. They're worried about whether they'll get a job, they're worried about whether they'll be able to leave home, you know, The economic responses by Western governments in recent years have pushed up the price of assets. That's where the inflation's been when they pump too much money into the economy so they can't afford a house. Uh, That's a bit rambly. But to young people who who, want to do the right thing uh, and are very worried about this, uh, what would you say? Because it seems to me that if you strip out hope and adopt a a view of catastrophic sort of denial, it's all hopeless, Uh, you know, you, you won't deal effectively with anything. You'll just fold inwards and cower in a corner in fear.
0: So they should, and obviously are concerned about the future, their futures, but also admirably the future of the planet. And what I would say is, first of all, please educate yourself about the various global problems, poverty, Food is less of a problem these days. We're growing, as I think we we mentioned already, more than enough food to feed the planet. Public health, education, uh, the status of women, these are all important global issues, and one should be understanding of them, as well as, of course, the changing climate. But educate yourself about how big these problems are and how much we can do about each one of them. With respect to your own futures, there are many problems at national levels. I like to say in the US, we're 4.5% of the population of the world, but we're roughly 20% of the GDP. And that means we're out of whack by something like 4 to 1 relative to the rest of the world. And you can be sure that the rest of the world is developing and catching up. And what happens as... The United States starts to shrink or to decline in the league tables, we lose our preeminent status, which I think is in some ways happening already. That's the problem to be worried about, and not whether the globe might rise by another degree in temperature. You know, we've already risen one degree or since 1900, and we've seen the greatest advance in human prosperity we've ever had and to think that another one or one and a half degrees in the next century is going to significantly derail that, I think beggars all understanding.
1: But if we're motivated by fear and that fear drives irrational responses, then we may have a very great deal to fear. And in fact, you just really alluded to something that I think is incredibly important. Club of Rome in the mid 60s and so forth, the overpopulation. We're all going to starve in reality the world's farmers have provided enough food for 10 billion people each year for the last 10 years um, and children's educational opportunities lifespans these were all massive problems to earlier generations and by yes at times catastrophizing yes a bit of hype over egging the cake switching concerns to these things but seeing them as challenges to be met and tackled and taken forward in a constructive way. Unbelievable progress has been made. Hope is important. Uh, fear constipates.
0: Yeah, and there will be more in this century, and the young people should be enthusiastic to be a part of that, and not just be moaning, oh my God, the climate is broken and the planet is dying.
1: Stephen, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I, I um, I'm amazed at the clarity and the, uh, the compelling nature of so much of what you've said. I appreciate it hugely. Uh, and uh, let's hope that the fog uh, from some of our thinking in these areas will clear and people, including from the business community, many of whom I have to say, I think have, have uh, not thought clearly about this, have, have wanted to uh, be politicians more than they have um, business leaders in recent times in my country anyway. Uh, let's hope that uh, that a sense of proportion and of commitment to evidence and besides your your discipline, rises to the fore again. But thank you so very much.
0: I share that hope as well, and it's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.